A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Dan Snow's History at on August the 23rd, 1963, more than 200,000 people gathered in Washington, D.C. for a gigantic march, so-called March on Washington, organized by African-Americans seeking justice and economic opportunities. This was the march that helped build pressure that passed the great civil rights legislation of 1964 and 65, and, of course, the march that featured the speech by Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., which has become one of the most celebrated speeches in history. In his speech, he quoted the US Constitution. He said he encouraged America to rise up and live up to its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. And then he told the assembled masses and the people of the world watching, he told them about his dream. A dream in which, as he said, all God's children, black men and white men, Jews and Gentiles, Protestants and Catholics, will be able to join hands and sing in the words of the old Negro spiritual, free at last, free at last, thank God almighty, we are free at last. In this episode of the podcast, I'm very lucky to be talking to someone who's not only a witness that day, who's not only a teenager standing in the crowd that day, but he's also got to know Dr. King's family and his archive better than anybody else. Dr. Claiborne Carson is a professor at Stanford University. He was asked personally by Coretta Scott King, Martin Luther King's wife, to edit his personal papers after his assassination. And he's now the director of the World House Project at the Center on Democracy Development and the Rule of Law. It was great to talk to Dr. Carson, ask him questions about that day as a participant, but also now as one of its most distinguished historians. Enjoy. Dr. Carson, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Can you tell me what it was like back in August 1963? You were there. Yes, I was. And I was only 19. And this was by far the largest assemblage of people I'd ever seen in my life. And I was by myself. I didn't come with a, a group. So I could wander around. And it was a really unique experience. You mentioned you're by yourself. Where do you come in from? Well, I had come from New Mexico to a conference in Indiana. And I basically hitched a ride with a group from Indianapolis. And that was about a thousand miles from Washington. So I just came with them overnight and arrived in the morning and then joined the crowd. And, you know, I'd grown up in New Mexico. So this was as many people as lived in the entire state. What was your person on your family situation like in New Mexico, were you experiencing out West many of the same inequities that African-Americans were experiencing in the Deep South, well, across industrial cities, across America? Well, in New Mexico at that time, there were very few black people there. 
in my town of 13,000 people, I think there was only three black families. So this was more than I had ever seen in my lifetime and all in one place. So it was a real experience. Was Martin Luther King Jr.'s speech, it was one of many speeches, did it have the same immediate impact or is that something that posterity has endowed it with? I think it's a little bit of both. I think that it was a great speech. It was quite short, only maybe 14, 15 minutes, something like that. And it was at the end of a long day of speeches. Quite frankly, I was looking for how am I going to get out of this crowd and find the bus I came on. And also, I think I was 19. So I was just as interested in John Lewis's speech because he was the youngster up there. He was the person representing the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. And so I was fascinated by his speech. By the time Martin Luther King came on, I had heard about him as an orator. So I was looking forward to seeing what are they talking about? Is this guy really that good? And uh, I could see that he was worthy of the reputation he had. Let's talk about the history first. It reminds me of that saying about when singer-songwriters or bands, everyone talks about overnight success, and it's actually taken them 20 years building up to that point of, of being widely recognized as having success. Can we go all the way back to the beginning of Dr. King and even before his career? Tell me about the mass march in 1941, another mass march of African-Americans on Washington. Well, that was organized by A. Philip Randolph and Bayard Rustin. One of the interesting things is that the 1941 march was to push President Roosevelt to hire black people to work in the war industries. It was a threat of a march, but it never came off. But it's so interesting that Bayard Rustin and A. Philip Randolph are still around 20 years later and help really plan and stage this march in 1963. So they had had this idea in their head for two decades. And uh, finally, they were able to pull it off. And I think that's one of the reasons why it was so successful is that they were among the most experienced organizers of that time. And they'd called off their march in 1941 because Roosevelt had basically sort of given in or agreed and compromised, agreed to give in some of their demands, right, around establishing fair employment practices. Yes, yes. He had issued an order and it had a significant impact on hiring of black workers during the war. And in fact, it had a significant impact on my life because my dad was later drafted into the military and gained opportunities that he probably would never have had if he had not gone into the military. He ended up lieutenant colonel in the military. So this was a major change, just like the March on Washington in 63. That was also a march for jobs and freedom. Jobs was part of the demand of the marchers. When I was growing up in the 80s, I still remember the idea that marches often did move the dial. And it's interesting you talk about this march or the prospects of March in 1941 that changed things in the 60s. It feels today like you, everyone's always marching about and it's like the governments around the world have worked out they don't have to worry about marches anymore. I don't know. Like Within the struggle for black freedom and, and justice in the US, are mass mobilizations like these marches important, do you think? Well, I think there's always the sense that this is important, especially when you come to the seat of government, when you come to Washington and you're marching on the National Mall, that's right in front of Congress. Even the threat of it, I think, had some impact. Now, it could have worked the other way around. If it had turned to violence, it might have had a negative impact on Congress. But even then, it took another year before 
significant civil rights legislation was passed, the march uh, did not have an immediate impact. Let's talk about the world in which the young Martin Luther King grew up and became a civil rights leader. Talk to me a little bit about his journey towards leadership. Well, first of all, I think it's good to know that his father and grandfather were leaders. They were significant civil rights leaders in their own right. So he came from a family of black ministers who used the pulpit as a way of reaching a larger audience and taking part in the civil rights struggles of the time. So I think he was prepared for that role, but it was almost an accident that he happened to be in Montgomery, Alabama, when basically it was women who started this bus boycott. And he was selected to be the spokesperson for the boycott. He had nothing to do with starting it. In fact, he didn't ride the buses, so his father was rich enough to have a car. So he became famous because this was a boycott that went on for over a year and finally won the right to sit wherever you want on a bus. And even though that seems like such a, a minor game, it was significant because it proved that if a black community could stay together and protest, they could achieve something. And that brought him national and international fame. Yes, it was interesting that uh, people in South Africa kind of picked up the idea that if you wanted to protest against a segregation law, you could just simply refuse to go along with it. The past law in South Africa was kind of stimulated by what happened in Montgomery. Nelson Mandela would later come to Detroit, where he met Rosa Parks, who had initiated the Montgomery bus boycott. And he knew about Rosa Parks's role. He had heard about it as a young person in South Africa. That's a conversation at which I wish I'd been a fly on the wall. That's amazing. Yeah, I heard when he got off the plane, he said, Rosa, Rosa, because he knew that she lived in Detroit and she was in the crowd there waiting for him. Oh, wow. Tell us about Birmingham. Having gained notoriety in Montgomery, tell us about Birmingham, Alabama, in the next sort of stage of his career. Well, I think it's important to know that he was going through a tough period in his life. He had tried to initiate a campaign in Albany, Georgia, that really failed. He had gone to jail, hoping that by going to jail, that would mobilize the community, and finally had to recognize that he wasn't going to win in Albany. But his minister friend, Fred Shuttlesworth, had said, you've got to come to Alabama, because if you can win there, you can win anywhere. Because Birmingham, Alabama was called Bombingham. This was a place where violence was used to beat down any kind of civil rights protest. So remarkably, he leaves this small town in Georgia, Albany, goes to this large city in Alabama, which has a reputation for fierce resistance. And the odds against him were large. He could have failed in Birmingham. Certainly, if he had failed in Birmingham, he would not have been invited to speak at the March on Washington. So that was a crucial turning point in his career that he was able to gain enough People criticized him for not gaining more, but he gained enough of concessions that he could come out of Birmingham and say, we succeeded. We got some concessions in the toughest place, the stronghold of segregation. And if we can win in Birmingham, that means we can win anywhere. And as well as concessions, had he also demonstrated that he could build a coalition between 
African-American groups, liberal or progressive whites? Had he proved that his style of campaigning, if you like, was scalable? I think so. I think that what he offered was he was coming at the end of a tradition or in the middle of a tradition of protest. And people like Baird Rustin had developed that over a long period of time. And I think what they recognized is that notion of nonviolent protest. You could put enough pressure without getting crushed. So nonviolence was a way of saying, we're discontented with this. We are willing to go to jail if necessary, but we're not going to give up. So that idea, which he, of course, borrowed from Gandhi in India, was what allowed this movement to grow and eventually succeed. You mentioned being in jail. He writes his beautiful letter from Birmingham jail. is now a very well-known canonical piece. And why is it that Birmingham leads to this big march on the nation's capital? Well, you can see that it has an effect throughout the nation. Birmingham was covered, and at that time, there were only three networks in the United States, so it was much easier to get full coverage, but it could dominate the news. And people could see that particularly children in Birmingham were being beaten by police and hit with fire hoses. And I think that affected enough people throughout the nation to know that this is something that's got to stop and that this is something where we have to really build upon it. And after Birmingham, when King goes to Chicago, there's 30,000, Los Angeles, 40 or 50,000, Detroit, 200,000 people waiting to hear him. So he becomes this celebrity after gaining this, yeah, it wasn't a much of a victory, but it was enough of a victory that he could go around the nation saying, look, this is what we did. If we get these kinds of mobilizations, we can begin to really bring about major civil rights reform. And it took a year, but it finally happened. Well, let's talk about civil rights reform, because Kennedy was in the White House, who had a sort of perhaps, I don't know, what do you think of his, his reputation for being basically on the right side of history when it comes to this? It's controversial in a way. He tried to persuade the team organizing this march on Washington not to go ahead with it, right? The last thing he wanted was uh, for his presidency to be about civil rights. If you go back and look, just listen to John F. Kennedy's inauguration address. It's about the Cold War, about prevailing in the Cold War. So from his perspective, why should I get distracted into this battle with segregation in the South? That's going to hurt me because the South is a Democratic Party stronghold at that time. So the last thing he wanted was his own coalition to get disrupted by this battle over civil rights. So he was definitely not in favor of the march. He basically recognized it was going to happen, whether or not he was in back of it. But once it became clear that it was going to happen, he wanted it to be nonviolent, because the last thing he needed was a major outbreak of violence. Kennedy was a reluctant civil rights proponent. He would have wanted his presidency to be about winning the battle with communism. And when you look at his speeches, he was very reluctant to take on that mantle of advocate of civil rights. But he was pushed in that direction. And Bobby Kennedy played a role in that because he felt that as attorney general, he needed to enforce national law 
even in Alabama and Mississippi and the Deep South. So I think Robert Kennedy played a crucial role because he saw that as his particular duty as attorney general to enforce federal law. It's very interesting that the dialogue between the leaders and the Kennedy brothers, they didn't end the march at the Capitol. So hauntingly today, given the events of last year, they didn't want the members of Congress to feel as if they were under siege. The march took place at the other end of the National Mall. The Capitol is at one end, the Lincoln Memorial is at the other end. Actually, the march organizers wanted it to be on the Capitol end and then decided, well, you know, that would appear to be that they are putting pressure on Congress directly and it might backfire in terms of public relations. So they agreed because there had been previous civil rights marches to the Lincoln Memorial and it was symbolically important. And they understood that it would be an appeal to the Congress, but Congress was what is it, a half a mile away, a mile away? It was not directly an assault like we had last year on January 6th. You listen to Dan Snow's history. We're talking about the March on Washington, and I have a dream. Aeroplanes, spacesuits, condoms, coffee, plastic surgery, warships. Over on the patented podcast by History Hit, we bring you the fascinating stories of history's most impactful inventions and the people who claim these ideas as their own. We uncover exceptional stories behind everyday objects. We managed to put two men on the moon before we put wheels on suitcases. Unpack invention myths. So the prince's widow immediately becomes certain. Thomas Edison stole her husband's invention and her husband disappeared around the same time, can only have been eliminated by Thomas Edison, who at the time is arguably the most famous person in the West. And look backwards to understand technologies that are still in progress. You know, when people turn around to me and say, oh, why would you want to live forever? Life's rubbish. I just think that's a bit sad. I think it's a worthwhile thing to do. And the thing that really makes it worthwhile is the fact that you could make it go on forever. So subscribe to Patented from History Hit on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts to catch new episodes every Wednesday and Sunday. Have you ever wondered if the Hanging Gardens of Babylon were actually real? Or what made Alexander so great? Join me, Tristan Hughes, twice a week, every week on the Ancients from History Hit where I'm joined by leading academics, best-selling authors, and world-class archaeologists to shine a light on some of ancient history's most fascinating questions, like who built Stonehenge and why? What are the Dead Sea Scrolls and why are they so valuable? And were the Spartan warriors really as formidable as the history books say? Join me, Tristan Hughes, twice a week, every week on the Ancients from History hit wherever you get your podcasts. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At bluenile.com, you can design a one of a kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. 
That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm really interested by the fact that the official title was The March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom. And it reminds me of the discussions going on around the Democrat Party at the moment is if you live in a time where there is economic hardships being encountered by and experienced by many families, but also a kind of existential threat to the republic and democracy itself under threat, how much balance do you give those two? We hear this discussion, is it a kitchen table issue? Is that something that actually was going on amongst the organizers this march as well? I think so. One of the things that A. Philip Randolph was a labor organizer. So he was used to the notion of economics being at the heart of this. Baird Rustin was his main advisor. And actually, Baird Rustin would later write a book from protest to politics, advising um, Black people to kind of de-emphasize protest a bit, emphasize you have an opportunity to exercise your political power. So that was his perspective. And I think that Clearly, the Kennedys would have wanted that to be the perspective of trying to work within the Democratic establishment. But I think one of the things they recognized over time is that the political landscape of the United States changed dramatically because of the civil rights reforms, the protests. The 1964 Lyndon Johnson landslide election was the last time in American history a majority of white Americans voted for a Democrat. It hasn't happened since. So the day itself, we got the 28th of August, 1963. You were there. How many people were alongside you? Well, I didn't count them at the time, but I heard it was 200,000. And I think that was a pretty good estimate. It really filled them all. I had never seen, as I said, that many people in one place at one time. And it's become more and more common you know, to, I think, the Earth Day protests later in the 60s, and then the Million Man March. But at that time, there had never been anything quite like this. And you had, as you mentioned, the late, great John Lewis talking there, as well as Dr. King. There were actors and singers, and give me a sense of who else was speaking up there. Well, it was so interesting that my life brought me into contact with so many of them. Right before the march, I had met Stokely Carmichael, who later became prominent uh, activist. John Lewis got to know him really well. There were so many people who, at that time, they were just part of the crowd and they were much more central to what was going on. I was just there by myself. But I think looking back, it's interesting when I think that 10 years later, I'm writing about that. I'm a historian. And part of what made that possible was that movement of opening up the possibility. I don't think I could have become a historian at Stanford University in 1963. There weren't any black professors here in 1963, I don't think. So a lot of the opportunities that opened up, 12 years later than that, Coretta King calls me on the phone and says, I'd like you to edit my late husband's papers. And now here I am talking about this as both a participant and a historian who has written about it. Let's just quickly talk about the I Have a Dream speech. It was He was scheduled to speak for four minutes. He went on for 16. And I think it's one of the most perfect speeches in the history of the English language. How off the cuff was it? Well, actually, it was about half and half. I have a draft of his original speech. It was handed out to the press. It didn't have any of the I Have a Dream part. 
it was a pretty good speech, but you can follow his speech and look at that early draft and see how he's responding to the crowd. He's looking out and he had been told before, he said, you know, look, you're supposed to only speak seven or eight minutes at the most, but you're Martin Luther King. You're the last speaker. It's not like you're going to hold up the program if you go on a little bit longer. And I think he understood that that was kind of an invitation to him. You get the sense of the crowd. And if you feel like extemporaneous remarks are necessary, and it's so interesting that he did not prepare to give the most interesting part of the speech. It was off the cuff. The way I look at it, he didn't prepare to give that, but he'd been preparing all of his life to give it. And is it a trope within his speeches that he talks about his dream? He embeds his dream in, in the language of the Constitution. Yeah, he had often given speeches about what he called the American dream. And you could see what that is. It's making real the promise of the Declaration of Independence. All men are created equal, all of that human rights language. It was part of the founding of the country. So when he gets to that point where he's saying, let's make it real. Here's our opportunity to turn this vision, this idealistic vision of America as a democratic, egalitarian society. That's the dream. So I think that he starts it out as the American dream. And actually, I've looked at his speeches and gradually the American dream becomes, I have a dream. And that happens about a year before he gives the speech in Washington. He starts not talking about abstractly the American dream. And he realizes it's much stronger to say, I have a dream. And I think that made the speech really special as you have him making it personal, because then he's essentially saying, we have this dream and we can make it real. Three months later, Kennedy was killed. And then, as you say, it's up to Johnson, Kennedy's vice president, now president, to try and build a legislative, concrete legacy for this march and this movement. How do you think the March on Washington influenced what came next? A lot. I think that Johnson recognized that that was a constituency. Lyndon Johnson became a civil rights president gradually because of his background in Texas during the Depression. His notion of making the society more egalitarian was something that was rooted in his experiences as a teacher, actually, of kids who were, were poor. And by the time he came to Washington, he didn't have a lot of experience with Black people, but he had this basic notion that if you can build this coalition of Black Americans, the labor movement, all of these people who were concerned about making the society more egalitarian, things like Medicare and you know, opening up college opportunities. That was something important to him. What he called the Great Society Program. And looking back, it was surprising to some people that he came forward with this. It was probably shocking to other people that he came forward with this because civil rights was part of it and he was losing part of his coalition. And then, of course, he had the war in Vietnam. And maybe without the war in Vietnam, that coalition might have grown larger. He might have been able to negotiate the race problem because there were a lot of white Southerners who didn't like his civil rights policies. 
And the Republican Party made that decision in 1968 to go after that vote. And so you had this massive movement of tens of millions of Southern white voters who had only voted for the Democratic Party in the first part of their life. And in the second part of their life, they only vote for the Republican Party. And that has changed the nature of American politics to this day. And Johnson lamented the fact that Vietnam killed the great society. So there was a legislative achievement before that successful Republican coalition. In 64 and 65, there were Civil Rights Act, Voting Rights Act. So there were firm legislative achievements. What about culturally? As a young black man watching that, do you think it's as important as getting the law changed? Was encouraging white people to see you as a person? I think that that was a longer process. And looking back, I think that you have a real problem in terms of human rights, and that is to mobilize people to fight for their rights, you've got to build their consciousness as a group without rights. You have to build that sense that they need to struggle to become equal to everybody else. But in the process, you're also facing a backlash of people who are losing their privileged status. And I think that that's what happened, is that at the same time you're opening the door for maybe tens of millions of Black people to vote for the first time in their lives, you're also opening the door for white Americans to say, I don't want to be part of that, that I'm losing my privilege, I'm losing my sense of being on top here. And that's the backlash. How else do you explain somebody who, as I said, spends the first years of their adulthood voting for a Democratic Party, never again do they vote Democratic. And that describes probably 20 million Americans. And that has changed the nature of American politics. I guess the the lesson there is, as Dr. King said in his famous letter from the Birmingham jail that I mentioned, but injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. It's about encouraging people not to see the loss of privilege, but the gains that you can make through building a wider and bigger and better society. But, you know, that's saying let's move beyond American history. (laughs) (laughs) Slavery was part of American history, and that's what we're still dealing with, is that from the beginning, we were a republic claiming to be a democracy, or at least hoping to be a democracy. And that was not in the cards when your economy and when your very existence depends on dominating other people, you know, not just Black people, but the Native people of the land and the America that white Americans grew up in was really based on the oppression of others. And they might not have admitted that, but that's just the historical reality. And they didn't want to leave that behind. How much has changed? If you could go back to that 19-year-old and he could see you now, would he be ambitious for more? Would he be excited and happy? What do you think? I find it difficult to give a simple answer to that because that's part of the complexity <laughs> of being here. You know, King's last question, when he writes his last book, where do we go from here? And I would argue we haven't answered that question. Americans haven't answered that question. The world hasn't answered that question. But he posed it as the alternative chaos or community. And I would advise you to just pick up today's newspaper, look through the articles on the front page. Are we heading toward chaos? Are we heading toward community? 
flip a coin. You know, it's, it's uh, depending on what day you're looking at the newspaper, I guess. You see signs that we might be kind of figuring this out. Because King's idea that he developed was the idea that we are working out right now in a project called the World House. He said, we're going to live our lives in this World House. The question is whether it's going to be chaotic or whether it's going to be a community. That's our only choice because we're not, unless we're Elon Musk and people like that who can choose to live on Mars, maybe. The rest of us are going to be on this fragile planet and we'll either fight it out and destroy ourselves or we'll kind of work it out. I think it is almost a flip of a coin right now. What about the young teenager, Claiborne Carson? Not yet Dr. Carson, not yet Professor. What would he have made of where you are now? What would he have made of the advances? And would he have been ambitious for more? If you had told that 19-year-old that uh, in a dozen years you're going to be a professor at Stanford University, he would have said, yeah, I'm going to be living on Mars too. So, <laughs> Well, hey, that's not too late, Dr. Carson. You may go along for the journey on that one. Yeah, yeah. It was probably just as improbable at that moment that that would have been my future. Or that the wife of that guy up on the stage, you know, Martin Luther King, his wife is going to call you on the telephone one day unexpectedly and change the course of your life. All of that would have been inconceivable. I'm very grateful that you've taken the time to have a much less important phone call with me and tell me all about it. So thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Uh, tell us more about the project you're working on, Dr. Carson. Right now, my project is called the World House Project. It's at Stanford. And what I've done is I really began to focus on educating people about living in the World House. I mean, I know that's a very ambitious thing for me and my little team of people, but that's what we're doing is we're trying to build educational projects that make people understand a little bit more about the struggle to make the world better and about Martin Luther King and his life. So anyone who's interested in that, anyone wants to support it, uh, you can just look up Clay Carson, the World House Project at Stanford. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. I feel the hand of history upon our shoulders. All this tradition of ours, our school history, our songs, this part of the history of our country, all were gone. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dan Snow's History. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of TV documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe as a special gift. You can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code Dan Snow at checkout.